Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career, and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation, and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Junior Doctors Corner. This is Helen, and today I've got here Dr. Dipti Mittal, who's a palliative care consultant at Concord Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dipti. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. And um, before we start, Dipti, would you mind giving us a, an introduction about where you're at at the moment in terms of your career? Sure. So I'm actually a New Zealand trained palliative care specialist and I did all my training there and moved to Sydney about six years ago uh, to be with my husband, who's also a doctor here. Um, I started off with a brief stint at Royal North Shore Hospital and then subsequently got a job about five years ago here at Concord Hospital and this is where I've stayed And I currently work predominantly in the inpatient unit and do a little bit of consulting in the main hospital, but my previous roles have included community palliative care as well. Sounds like you've had quite a varied and like dynamic career so far with um, a fair bit of experience in Australia and also overseas. What has made you choose palliative care as, as a specialty? I think I, when I was going through med school, I always felt I was going to be a gastroenterologist. Yeah. <laughs> and that was my mindset. However, whereas I enjoyed it as a medical student, I found that what working in gastroenterology as a junior doctor didn't quite ignite my passion the way I expected it would. And then I did a lot of general medicine and tried a lot of different uh, specialties. And I found ger- geriatrics to my liking as well. Um, But it wasn't until my husband pointed out that I seem to get the most satisfaction when I'm dealing with dying patients Mm. um, that the thought of palliative care actually even arose because palliative care wasn't part of our curriculum Mm -hmm. uh, in medicine. And I hadn't, to be honest, even heard about it at the time that I graduated from mid school. To find out that there's a specialty that looks particularly after end-of-life care uh, was something that I tried. I did a six-month locum in the hospice in Auckland, in one of the hospices in Auckland. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And that gave me the motivation to do my basic physician training exams. Mm -hmm. And I haven't looked back since. Fantastic. What what are the aspects that you loved most about palliative care? I think the aspects that I loved the most about palliative care were the fact that you were allowed to stand back and look at the whole picture and the whole person. And I think, you know, subspecialization is a really good thing. Um, but I think sometimes we get too focused in this, in our own specialty that we forget to look at the person as a whole. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that, you know, the focus was just not on the patient. It was on the family as well. So, you know, you're not just looking after the patient. You're, you're making sure that the family that's, you know, is looking after the patient at home is able to cope and you're providing as much support for them as you are for the patient. Um, And I love the fact that, you know, it wasn't all just about medicine and the most recent research. It was about the little things, you know. It was about someone vomiting for days on end and then you being able to fix their nausea 
and then being able to say, I've just had the best breakfast I've ever had, <laughs> you know, in a really long time. And, and to be able to uh, fix the little things that actually make a huge difference um, yeah. in terms of quality of life. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes in the hiring and buzz of hospital, we often forget that sometimes like a cup of tea can mean so much to a patient. Yes. In terms of palliative care, we know that it can be done in the hospital, but can you give us an idea of where else palliative care can be done? I think there are two parts to this question. Yeah. I think uh, one of the parts is where can palliative care be done? Um, yeah. and But the other question is who provides palliative care? Yeah. Um, and palliative care should and inadvertently is provided to all patients with a life-limiting illness. Mm -hmm. Most palliative patients will not be seen by a specialist palliative care service because they're managed very well by their primary health care provider. Um, And sometimes other specialists involved in their care, for example, a lot of the geriatricians do a lot of very good end-of-life care, and we never see them Mm -hmm. because they don't have specialist needs. Um, it's also, I guess, important to understand that in the metropolitan setting, and you know, we're in Sydney, we're very fortunate to have specialist palliative care services. But in a lot of the non-metropolitan services, where a lot of you know medical students and junior doctors will end up, they don't have a specialist palliative care service. So, so it's about you know the, the GP will be the palliative care specialist mm-hmm. for the patients in the community or they might have a specialist nurse and they're the ones that do all the palliative care. Right. So I think, you know, most people are not going to become specialist palliative care, yes. special, like physicians or doctors or nurses, mm-hmm. but most health professionals will do palliative care. The majority of the palliative care is actually provided in the community mm-hmm. and it's predominantly by the GPs and where available community nurses as well. Mm. Um, and it is because most people prefer to be at home. So if you ask anyone where they would prefer to be, no one really prefers to be in the hospital or in a palliative care unit. They want to be at home. And a lot of palliative care is about trying to maintain people at home, so make sure that they're comfortable, mm. um, make sure that they're managing and that they're as functional as they can be. There are other places that palliative care is provided. So we have palliative care in the consult service, so in the main hospitals, And usually that's because we're invited to help with the management of a patient who is palliative, Mm -hmm. Um, but they may be having other um, treatments. So say, for example, a lot of our patients are oncology patients. They are having chemotherapy or immunotherapy, but they've got uncontrolled symptoms or they're coming to the end of their treatment options um, and we work with other specialties um, or specialists looking after the palliative care needs of the patients that are under their care. Yeah. And then we've got the palliative care units yeah. uh, where patients are admitted. And most of these palliative care units are specialist units. So patients are admitted for a short period of time. Yeah. Um, and usually they're admitted either because they've got uncontrolled symptoms mm-hmm. that can't be managed in the community. Yeah. Or they are at the end of lives where the prognosis is expected to be short weeks Mm. Um, or sometimes uh, for patients and families who really want to look after their loved ones at home but where there is quite a lot of care stress and care fatigue we do offer respite for those families as well so you Mm. know sometimes just having a week a, a, a one or two week break allows them to sort of regain their energy and 
have a relook at their house and make sure they've got all the right support so that they can continue to look after the patient. Right, I see. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned that um, actually not a lot of people end up specialising in palliative care. However, it's very relevant to all of us because it's done by so many different doctors like GPs and um, I'm guessing like geriatricians yes. and a lot of other specialists as yeah. well. So it makes it really relevant to a lot of the medical field um, and uh, definitely to junior doctors as well. And it sounds like you get quite a variety of patients who come in to the palliative care unit itself. Um, interesting that you say that it's for a fair, like a short period. Is yeah, that right? That's so, right. That's yeah. right. So I think a lot of patients get really worried about the palliative care unit because they think it's a one-way street. So, yeah. you know, they're going to go in there and never going to be allowed out because that's where you're going to die. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the truth is they get a pretty rude shock when we tell them that, you know, we, we do need to organise you know, for you to go home or go to uh, perhaps a residential aged care facility once the acute problems have been dealt with. Right. Yeah. So, you know, once we've got symptoms under good control, once they've been reviewed by the allied health team, once we make sure they've got all the supports that, you know, that we can provide and that they require at home, um, we usually do get people home. And, you know, sometimes we have to... Organise a nursing home, which is always a very unpleasant experience mm. for everyone involved. Oh, yeah. yeah. So how does the palliative care unit um, vary from a geriatrics unit? Yeah. So um, I think with geriatrics, partly it's, it's the age of the patient as well, although we do have a huge number of geriatric patients, so patients over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. But usually with uh, a geriatric admission, um, the doctors are looking to try and sort of improve underlying pathology mm-hmm. and to a lot of extents trying to rehabilitate people so that they can get back to, you know, their place of care. Mm. Now, in palliative care units, we do try and correct certain pathologies. So say, for example, someone came in with an aspiration pneumonia and this is the first aspiration pneumonia they've had, we would treat with IV antibiotics. And and when I say this, this is our unit. This is what we do in our unit. There are a lot of palliative care units who practice differently, who would not necessarily provide IV antibiotics or blood transfusions. But in our unit, if someone comes in, say, with a low hemoglobin and it is consistent with their goals of care that we treat it, that we would transfuse and we would give IV antibiotics. Um, A lot of our patients, we probably wouldn't be too aggressive in terms of our investigation into things so the first question that um, I think about is is this investigation going to change my management yeah yeah so there's not a lot of investigations for the sake of um, academia so for the sake of trying to find out what is going on Mm -hmm. Uh, we would only do an investigation if there was a suitable treatment for it Mm -hmm. so say for example someone came in with headaches and vomiting and they're known to have metastatic cancer, Mm. my first question would be, is this person well enough to tolerate radiotherapy to the brain? Mm. Um, And is this what the patient wants? Mm. You know, so if the patient has clearly stated to me in a clinic appointment that I don't want anything that's going to prolong my life, Mm. you know, my quality of life is really terrible and I don't want it, I will not do that CT scan. Mm. Mm. Um, 
If, however, they've said, look, you know, if it's appropriate and if there's a possibility I can get home, that I would want reversible things treated, yeah. then I would organise a CT scan. I'll start them on some dexamethasone and then if appropriate and, you know, if there is brain meds, I would speak to the radiation oncologist. Right, I see. Yeah. So it sounds like... Um, it's quite individualised, the care that you provide, and it really depends on the patient wishes as well as um, the disease um, progression and how advanced it is. Um, in the hospital setting, um, who is usually responsible, whether on a palliative care team or on a different team, say on geriatrics or oncology, who is usually the medical officer who makes the decision about um, a patient's um, end-of-life care? Ultimately, the responsibility is that of the consultant that the patient is under. Yeah. So they, you know, the ultimate um, decision is theirs. Yeah. Um, but typically, and what happens quite commonly, especially in a lot of the bigger hospitals, is the decision is made by the multidisciplinary team. Mm-hmm. And usually, most teams will have at least a weekly, if not twice a week, uh, MDT meeting where mm-hmm. uh, patients are discussed and possible treatment options are discussed as well. Mm-hmm. And usually they review the patient's progress, the treatments received, possible future treatments, and whether these are appropriate and in keeping with the patient's and family wishes, and right. whether what they're going to do is likely to modify the underlying pathology yeah. as well. The decision isn't made lightly, mm. yeah, and, um, and it often requires clear, open, and honest discussion with the patient and family. Mm-hmm. There are differences, however. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, when we... When we talk about changing someone or converting someone's care to palliative care or end-of-life care, mm. I think what it's really, really important to understand is that there are differences between conservative care and comfort care yeah. and palliative care. Yeah. You know, um, And that's where it's really important as a junior medical officer when you're documenting mm. to understand that, well, at least in my opinion, all of these terms are vague. Right. Yeah. Um, and they often result in confusion. Yeah. Um, uh, and the confusion is about what level of care is appropriate. Yeah. So say, for example, a patient with severe valvular disease may not be suitable for a valve replacement and is thus treated conservatively with yeah. optimal medical management, mm-hmm. yeah, i.e. drugs. Mm-hmm. Their prognosis must, might still be years. Yeah. So yeah. although you're treating them conservatively, and you could say palliatively, their prognosis could still be used. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and say, for example, a patient dying of aspiration pneumonia or urosepsis may be offered IV antibiotics, even when the prognosis is thought to be days or short weeks, because they may add comfort by eliminating dysuria and really severe secretions. Mm-hmm. Um, and a patient with liver failure and recurrent ascites with potentially years to live is treated palliatively with recurrent aspirations of the acidic fluid because it adds to comfort and quality of life. Right. Um, so terms such as palliative and comfort and conservative yeah. don't really tell you what you're supposed to do for mm-hmm. the patient. Okay. So I would recommend that the goals of care and the ceiling of care are clearly documented, documented in the notes where everyone can see them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know that not every hospital has EMR, but most do. And there is a tab that says record of advanced care planning yeah. um, in on EMR. Yeah. And that's where I document my goals of care. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and say, as an example, if I was documenting, I would never use any of the above mentioned terms. Okay. Instead, I would clearly state what is appropriate. Right. Yeah. So say, for example, I might say Mr. X has cholangiocarcinoma yeah. uh, and is at risk of biliary obstruction. Yeah. Uh, he is for consideration of ERCP and stent insertion and ward-based management of reversible conditions on the ward, for example, IV antibiotics and transfusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would add, uh, after further discussions and assessment of risks, he is, he is for a time-limited trial of inotropes in the intensive care unit, mm-hmm. uh, but he is not for consideration of C- CPR intubation or NIV. Right. So if Mr. X presents to the emergency department in the middle of the night, yeah. and I've got, you've got that documented in the record of advanced care planning, mm-hmm. the ED doctor, registrar, intern, consultant, anyone yeah. knows exactly how active they need to be in terms of the investigation and management. Yeah, sure. Um, I think what I found as as a junior doctor is I've learned very quickly how important documentation is. Um, And I was just wondering, with this, um, like, documenting in the EMR and the palliative care section, is that something that junior doctors can do or is that more for a palliative care consultant to do? No, it is for the team to do. And since the junior doctor is the person that is usually given the task of documentation, yeah. they are very welcome to rot yeah. uh, in that tab. Yeah. Um, and especially because, you know, sometimes you have these amazing, you know, a lot of teams and a lot of doctors will have these amazing conversations with patients and families. And, you know, and the junior doctor will do a beautiful job of documenting it Yes. in the EMR documentation. Yeah. And then documentation just gets gets buried amongst all the other, you know, documentation that occurs after that. You can never Mm -hmm. find it again, Mm -hmm. you know, whereas if you've had those conversations, you've made the effort to have those difficult conversations, you've made the effort to document it beautifully, you know, put it somewhere where it can be seen. Yeah. Yeah. And used and, yes, and, 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 you know, and found easily. Yeah. 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 So how long would you um, say if something was documented three years ago, is there like a time frame for which you'd really consider revising? Yes. Yeah. So um, advanced care directives have to be reviewed every year. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, in order to for them to be valid. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and usually if they're very old, you know, people will usually ignore them. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you may review the advanced care director, but you haven't documented that you've reviewed it and still stands. Yeah. In which case, you know, people are just going to ignore it. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um, the goals of care discussion, I think it's really important to understand that it's an ongoing process. Right. You know, and it is something that needs to be addressed at different stages. So whereas at this point, you know, Mr. X is appropriate for ERCP and potentially inotropes after an ERCP, yeah. you know, three weeks down the track, he might have overwhelming sepsis and we might have tried some IV antibiotics and he hasn't got better or he's not well enough for an ERCP. Yeah. At that point, you would revise the goals of care. Yeah. And at that time, I might have a conversation with the patient and family and say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but, you know, we've tried the IV antibiotics and it doesn't look like, you know, it's made much of an improvement. He's too unwell for an ERCP. And I think what we're looking at is the end of life. Mm-hmm. Mr. X is dying mm-hmm. and we need to focus on his comfort. Yeah. And at that point, 
I would update the advanced care planning tab because I've had the conversation again and now he's no longer for IV antibiotics and blood transfusions in the RCP. He is purely for comfort management, which I don't like <laughs> to <laughs> say. Term. Yes. Uh, well, I will that? specify. I yeah. will specify and I will say, you know, he's not for further investigations yeah. uh, and he's not for management of reversible conditions. Right. In the ward. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the main learning points there are that, um, first of all, it's it's an ongoing discussion. It can change over time and generally they revise at least every year. Yeah. Um, and that... Uh, the discussion is between the team and the patient. And I guess as a geriomo, you'd have to constantly liaise with your registrar and also the consultant to see what exactly the plan is for the patient. And it's it's interesting to note that um, although personally come across the words like comfort care and palliative care and conservative care quite a fair bit in documentation, these are terms which you said you don't quite like because they're quite vague. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But I think, you know, next time you see that term, yeah. just ask yourself, what does the team mean? Yeah. Yeah, because I can guarantee that you it won't be clear. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's something I definitely learned this year that there are lots of levels of grey when it comes to it's very nuanced and individualised um, for each patient as to what the the actual plan is. Um, I can say from experience at the start of my geriatrics term um, and having had very limited experience in palliative care, I. I documented um, at a meeting for a patient, you know, we were discussing the care for a patient and they said, is this patient palliative or not? Yes, sort of. So I'd actually written partially palliative and thought to myself, that's probably not right. But then as soon as we um, sort of said that, we moved on to the next patient and I didn't have time to revise it and got into trouble later on when I was spotted by my registrar. And he said, what do you mean by that? So um, from this experience, personally, I realised, um, first of all, it's so nuanced. And secondly, um, because it's such a sensitive topic, it's really important to for every junior doctor to take some time to understand um, what palliative care really is. Um, and from that, hopefully that will reflect in the documentation, which yeah, yes. is so important. Absolutely. And, yeah, so I guess for junior doctors out there or medical students, if they have any questions, um, always remember and don't be afraid to ask your team um, about what exactly they mean. Um, the other question I would have, I suppose, and as a junior doctor, what I found was at what point do you does a team uh, consult the palliative care unit um, for a patient's palliative care? Because, as you said, a lot of teams and a lot of doctors deal with palliative care themselves. So what at what point do we... Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So the most common reasons for referral to a specialist palliative care service are most common is uncontrolled symptoms. And this could range from pain to nausea to constipation to itch, etc. Symptom management consults are always a good avenue for breaking taboos and barriers uh, uh, to involving palliative care. Um, because a lot of patients and families become very nervous when they hear the term palliative care. Mm. So being involved with symptom control can provide an opportunity to build rapport, uh, which is essential for more difficult conversations yeah. later on. Yeah. Um, other reasons are for introduction to the palliative care service or palliative approach when patients are approaching the end of treatment options for their illness. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, patients with cancer who have progressed through several lines of chemotherapy and are about to start a trial drug, uh, where the chances of success are unknown and there is a possibility of rapid deterioration, mm-hmm. 
Um, a lot of our specialty colleagues from oncology and hematology are very good at starting those conversations about shifting the focus um, from cure <laughs> to comfort yeah. um, and introducing palliative care services at an appropriate time. Mm. Um, it's also really useful to involve the palliative care uh, palliative care team in patients who are dying in hospital with uncontrolled symptoms or in situations where the patient and or family are just not coping with the deterioration and are demanding treatments that the medical team know are futile and unlikely to benefit the patient. Mm. Um, and another common reason for consults is patients um, and or families expressing a wish to have end-of-life care at home yeah. um, because that involves a lot of organisation and liaison. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, what constitutes part of a, a good palliative care consult if we do require this for a patient? Yeah. I think a clear indication of why the consult is required is really helpful. Um, for example, is a consult for assistance with symptom management or assistance with advanced care planning because the patient and family are unable to accept the limitations of medical treatment? Um, or assistance with discharge planning for end-of-life care at home, um, not general discharge planning because that usually is, is the team's responsibility, mm-hmm. um, and introduction to the service because the patient is embarking on the final treatment option. So just clearly stating what it is that, you know, you would like the palliative care team to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and where the consult is for symptom management, a summary of treatments that have been tried before is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to know that some attempt has been made to manage the symptoms and that the patient hasn't been suffering uncontrolled symptoms because the basic steps haven't occurred yet. Right. Yeah, yeah. so sounds like an indication of what exactly you want us to do or want the, what we want the palliative care team to do and also what treatments have been done for them already yeah. are two key factors. Um, and after, I guess, we've talked about what treatments have already been done for patients um, what sort of in- interventions um, does palliative care uh, often provide and do they provide any interventions at, at all? Yeah. Um, palliative care has evolved rapidly and it's no longer just for patients who are, you know, in the last few days or weeks of life. Um, with the change in treatment options, people are living much longer yeah. as well. Uh, and they've got a lot more comorbidities and complications from not just the underlying disease but the treatments they've received. Yeah, you know, so say for example, you know, painful peripheral neuropathy is a really common problem in patients who receive chemotherapy. Yeah, um, and so yes, they may be cured of their cancer or partially cured of their cancer, um, but they're living with this horrible neuropathic pain that they can't sleep with. Right. Yeah. So, um, so coming back to your question, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Like I said earlier, I think, you know, each palliative care unit is different. So it is important to sort of familiarise yourself with what your your local palliative care service or inpatient unit does provide. Mm. Say, for example, in our unit, we would, you know, give IV antibiotics and we would give blood transfusions. Um, We generally wouldn't support, say, artificial nutrition you know, through a PEG or through TPN. Generally, we wouldn't support that for for the purpose of keeping people alive for longer. However, say you've got an MND patient who's had a PEG for over a year 
and they usually have peg feeds and they've come in for a bit of respite, mm. we would continue with the peg feeds, okay. you know, because that's just he's only there for respite. Yeah. If he's coming for end-of-life care, then, yes, we would have a discussion about stopping the peg feeds at that point. Okay. I know you've used the word respite. And what exactly does that mean? Yeah. Um, so respite is really just a little bit of a break for the patient's family. Right. Yeah. So um, patients that are at home where the family has, you know, made a commitment to look after them, um, there is a very high risk of uh, care and stress and burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we come to hospital and we've got an eight-hour shift and then we go home. Yeah. If you've got a really sick patient at home yeah. and you are that person's family member, there is no break. You yeah. are the carer 24-7. Um, and that can lead to a huge amount of stress for the carer. Yeah. Um, it can completely change the relationship between, you know, if, if it's a wife looking after a husband, because yeah. all of a sudden they're not husband and wife, they're just a patient and, you know, the wife becomes a carer. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge difference in the roles they play. Um, and if, say, for example, someone's needing to get up multiple times at night, you know, it results in a huge amount of sort of sleep deprivation. Mm. And we like to try and help those families to prevent them from getting to a breaking point. Mm. Yeah. So organising a bit of respite so that, you, you know, that the patient come into the unit, we will look after them for a week or two. You use this time to go for a holiday, mm. to just rest and relax, mm-hmm. you know, and while they're here in the unit, we will reassess their needs and just make sure that we don't need to organise more equipment at home that will make it easier for the carer. Right. Yeah. So that's respite. So they're not being admitted necessarily because they're acutely unwell or they've got symptoms that need management. Yeah. You're doing it so that you can help the carer just regenerate and rejuvenate so that they can continue to to look after the patient at home right that's really interesting so so one of the indications I suppose for a patient to be admitted under the the palliative care team is actually if a family requires some respite from full-time care for a patient okay so what what about a different scenario so if a patient's come into ED and they come in and they're unable to make their own decisions with regards to their end-of-life care and if they lack capacity. What is the difference between um, a guardian and enduring power of attorney and how are they relevant to, I guess, um, us, uh, if we were, say, on the admissions team in ED? Sure, sure. Um, And I'm glad you asked this question because this is a situation that occurs more commonly than we would like. Um, you know, ideally in the ideal world, we would have had discussions about end-of-life care and patient wishes and we would have, you know, documented it clearly and we would have discussed it with the patient and their family and we would have asked the patient, who would you like to make decisions for you Mm -hmm. should you be unable to do so? Um, Where this has not occurred and where the patient is determined not to have the capacity to make decisions with regards to health, the appointed enduring guardian is asked to step in and make decisions. Mm-hmm. It is important to differentiate the enduring guardian from the enduring power of attorney, um, and that is that the enduring guardian has the authority to make lifestyle and medical decisions, so things such as accommodation, what sort of health care um, providers they can get in, mm-hmm. whereas the enduring 
power of attorney has the authority to manage the legal and financial affairs of the incapacitated person. So they can't make any health-related decisions. Yeah. Many people don't appoint an enduring guardian. And for this person, it is important to determine the substitute decision maker. And there are guidelines for this. Right. So the first person to consider is the patient's most recent spouse if the relationship is close and continuing. Yeah. So, you know, if someone's had multiple marriages, it's it's the most recent spouse that they are are, are with. Yeah. Um, if they don't have a spouse, the next person is an unpaid carer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, for example, we have a lot of daughters and sons who take on the responsibility of looking after their, their parents, so they, mm-hmm. they would be then uh, you helping make decisions. And if there's no unpaid carer, a close friend or relative can be appointed. Mm-hmm. Where there is no person available or where the substitute decision-maker is unwilling to take on the role of decision-making, an application for a public guardian needs to be made. Right. Okay. What happens in the context if a patient comes into ED and they're so sick um, with such a poor prognosis that there might not be enough time to time to appoint an enduring guardian? Yeah. The guidelines say that, you know, patients can undergo medical and dental treatment if it is urgent and um, life-threatening. Yeah. You know, and I guess in a situation where someone's coming in and dying, suppose it is sort of life-threatening, but you don't have an obligation, and this is really, really important for everyone to understand, you don't have an obligation to provide care that is futile. Right. So you do not have to resuscitate someone where you know that the outcome is going to be death. Right. Anyways. Yeah. Um, And in terms of palliative care, I'm going to reiterate what I said earlier, that not all dying patients need specialist palliative care. Mm Um, majority of patients who die will not need, uh, will never meet or need a specialist palliative care service. Yeah. Um, and palliative care is everyone's business. And provided mm-hmm. the treating team has the communication skills to explain clearly to the family that the patient is dying and that everything possible will be done to ensure they are as comfortable as they can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, provided the treating team knows what end-of-life medications to chart and which medications, investigations and ops to stop. Mm-hmm. And provided they try to find a quiet space for the patient and family to be together with as little or as much interference from health professionals as they want, mm-hmm. most families will be very happy with that care. Right. Um, and I think the other thing, you know, this doesn't go down with a lot, well with a lot of doctors because, you know, <laughs> it doesn't quite fit with our egos. But, you know, end-of-life care doesn't need a lot of medical skill. Um, it needs skills and good communication. Mm. anticipatory prescribing and a willingness to check in and show that you are available if the patient and family need you because dying is a natural process and we shouldn't try and medicalize it right that's really interesting um do you mind expanding on that a bit what do you mean by medicalize so you know a lot of people who are dying um will exhibit say symptoms such as excess secretions Mm. You know, they may display chain-stoke breathing, yeah. you know, and these are symptoms that can make us feel quite uncomfortable yeah. um, because they're uncomfortable to watch. But then usually not associated with discomfort or a huge amount of distress in patients. 
because even though a patient's dying and is not able to verbally communicate, they are able to express distress by getting agitated or frowning or thrashing about. Mm. So if they're not doing that, um, you know, there, there's really no advantage to giving someone, say, glycopyrrolate for what is commonly known as the death rattle, so a lot of secretions when people are dying, just to quieten down the secretions because they sound horrible when they're not distressing the patient. Mm. Um, and you know, saying that there's not much evidence for glycopyrrolate. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> and exactly. just repositioning the patient is usually enough. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. definitely a really interesting point and something for us to take note of. And given the unique time that we're in, um, I do feel inclined to ask you a question about how you've seen COVID-19 impact palliative care on patients. Um, look, I think we've been very lucky <laughs> as a country yes. uh, in, in, in this pandemic. There has been an impact on, on our patients and our care, especially out in the community. Sure. We've had patients and families who have become really worried about the community nurses going in to visit them at yeah. home, yeah. Um, which has resulted in them, you know, putting up with a whole lot more suffering than they would have if the nurses were coming to visit regularly. Uh-huh. And this has led to some avoidable admissions to a hospital because they've stopped the nurses coming in, you know, and the nurses can go in and they can change the medication and make sure that they're a bit more comfortable, yeah. which is why we ask the nurses to go in. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, that, that has been one issue. Yeah. Um, the dying in the palliative care units and the dying in the aged care facilities has been particularly traumatic. For, for for families because yeah. you know a lot of aged care facilities are not allowing any family members to be mm-hmm. there. Um and we had to, you know, we had no limitations on on family members coming in visiting a dying patient. But mm-hmm. now we've we've had to impose limitations and mm-hmm. that has caused a lot of stress mm-hmm. um for the patients, for the families, but also for the staff because you know it's it's sort of um you know in addition to focusing on the, the 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 care they have to provide the patient, they've got to start policing the number of (laughs) visitors in the rooms as well. And that's caused a bit of conflict. Things have improved, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, for for a while there, it was was quite unpleasant. Yeah, for sure. Um, It's so, it's almost cruel to imagine that in a patient's last days, um, because of COVID, sometimes you'd have to keep the family away just when the patient and the family most need to and want to be together. Yes. Sounds yeah. like it's a very difficult situation. Um, but fortunately, the situation isn't too too bad here. Yeah. It's getting better. And I guess because palliative care in itself is such a complex and important field, and it can be quite difficult, not just for the patients, the families, but also, as you mentioned, for the staff and, of course, for JMOs as well. What some advice that you could give junior doctors um, to take care of their own and their colleagues' well-being whilst they're on, say, a palliative care term or dealing with palliative care patients, which for sure they will encounter at some point in their career? Um, I think that's a really good question Um, because it's hard dealing with death and dying um, and suffering on a daily basis. And for me, the most beneficial thing is to have a really good team of people um, I think it's really important to recognize 
what resources you have available to you yeah. um, and mobilising those resources so you don't feel like you have to do it all on your own. Yeah. Dying is a natural process and we must be mindful that we don't try and medicalise it yeah. again. Often what the patient and family need is excellent nursing care and supportive counselling. Right. So if you or your colleagues are feeling burdened, I encourage you to ask for assistance from your nursing and allied health colleagues because they are more likely you know, going to be the ones that can make the most difference in the patient and the family's care. And, of course, debriefing. You yeah. know, because you will be amazed at how many of your colleagues have felt exactly the same way you have when you're dealing with a difficult death. Mm-hmm. And always remember that your friendly palliative care team is there to help as well when things get difficult. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Mittal. Those are some really great ideas. And I was wondering, on a more personal level, and I'm sure our listeners and myself would be really interested to hear Um, Being a palliative care physician, do you have any tools or techniques that you use yourself to build your emotional resilience? So I didn't have a huge amount of resilience at all. I would be the junior doctor sort of, you know, tears in my eyes and crying sort of, you know, in in a room while (laughs) while those conversations were happening. And I think the best thing that, you know, everyone did was they just sort of ignored me. So <laughs> didn't make a big deal out of it because I think that would that would have just made it a whole lot worse. I think even till today, there are some patients and some families that will affect you. You know, whereas with most of your patients, you're, you'll be okay and you've got that resilience. You know, sometimes there are, patients or families that you just find a connection with, you know. So it might be they're your age, you know, that's, that's a yeah. common one. Yeah. Uh, their family structure is very similar to you, got children your age, you know, yeah. something that just sort of hooks onto you and, and you know, you, you feel a connection. Yeah. And I think being mindful of that, being mindful of the sorts of patients and families that do press your buttons. Yeah. Is useful. I don't know that it necessarily makes it easier, but you know, when you work in a really good team, you can sometimes recognize that and tell your colleagues that, you know, I think I'm going to find this patient really, you know, um, I think I think I connect with this patient and I think I might find this really difficult. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you feel that the boundaries are being crossed, let me know. Right. Yeah. Because okay. it's really important to know what your boundaries are, yeah. you know, and, and you know, and different people are, are, are different. I think because people are different, sometimes you have to cross those boundaries to sort of connect with, you know, certain patients and families. But I choose not to. I choose a certain boundary and I choose to sort of stay on this side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes if you are quite clear about what you will and will not provide, mm-hmm. um, it makes it easier. What do you mean by that? So, you know, say, for example, I've looked after a lot of patients who have died, but I haven't been to a single funeral. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you get the invitations, yeah. but I just feel that, you know, well, you know, you connect more with some patients, but I don't necessarily want to attend one person's funeral, but not the others. Right. And if I started attending everyone's funerals, I wouldn't be doing a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So it's important for people to personally decide at what point do they set a professional boundary. Yeah. Would you say though, um, is it a weakness to show emotion around patients? I don't think so. I don't think, you know, firstly, when the problem is it's very hard to sort of control the emotions sure. when they yeah. when they do come. Um, and I think, you know, provided you're not in a situation where the patient and family is comforting you, yeah. I think it's okay. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of, patients and family actually appreciate the fact that you can relate to them in, in, you know, that deeply. Yeah. I still get tearful at times. Mm. Very human, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the day I stop feeling those feelings is probably the day I need to stop doing palliative care. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So that's a really good indicator of the fact that you're getting burnt out. Right. And how do you prevent yourself from getting burnt out? I have an excellent team. Yeah. <laughs> I have an excellent team. I know um, the strengths of everyone that works in my team. Yeah. And I will often delegate certain roles or certain jobs to certain people. Yeah. yeah. And I think also, you know, it's taken me some time, but I've finally come to the conclusion that I can't be all things to all people. Mm. And that, you know, there are other people who do particular jobs much better than I do and they should be the ones doing it. And then the other thing I've also recognised is I'm not everyone's cup of tea and um, there are some people in the team that will do, um, you know, that that the patients and families will relate to much better. And so I will allow them to do that. Sure. Yeah. I also, we debrief a lot in our department. Oh. Yeah. and we try and make it a department that is really welcoming and supportive for junior doctors yeah. and registrars. We focus a lot on education for the registrars and junior doctors because that is one of the things, you know, empowering and, and upskilling um, people is one of the things that has been proven to prevent burnout. Yeah. Um, and... We also organise reflective professional supervision for our registrars. So that's every about four times a term in a six-month term. They have dedicated time with the bereavement counsellor to use and talk about whatever they want. Yeah. And and the consultants have nothing to do with it. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it is for the self-care of the registrars and it's to try and inculcate a culture of self-care amongst yeah. them. Yeah. And I personally um, engage in monthly clinical supervision mm. where I will speak to yeah. clinical supervisor who happens to be a clinical psycholog- uh, psychotherapist yeah. about work and situations that I might find difficult at work. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That sounds like a fantastic program. Yeah. Yeah. And um, self-care is so important in um, any doctor's career. Uh, If we don't care for ourselves, it's difficult to provide the care for our patients. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure a lot of people found your uh, advice and anecdotes really, really helpful. So, yeah, thank you so much. No worries. 
If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 